Okay, so we are carrying on in our study of First Timothy, um, just to give you again the breakdown, um, particularly the First Timothy. Um, the first chapter looks at faith of the church, doctrine, particularly the importance of doctrine. Uh, and then as we go on to uh, this session, uh, we're into chapter two, we're looking at order in the church. Uh, and we'll talk more about that as we go through. Uh, chapter three starts to look at those in positions of authority, the officers of the church. Chapter four goes on to look at the apostasy uh, that Paul was warning Timothy was coming into the church. And of course, we have 1900 years of history um, and obviously what's going on in the world around us now to to confirm that um, and then in chapters 5 and 6 it tells off with looking at the responsibilities of those that have roles within the, the church so it's very much a, a letter uh, of structure of how a church should function um, yes they are listed as pastoral epistles very often um, but these are not just for pastors these are for the whole congregation uh, that we can learn together so uh, as we go into uh, chapter 2 let's just bow our hearts and commit this time to the Lord, shall we? Father, thank you for your word, and thank you, Lord, that you have given us instruction. Lord, thank you that you haven't left us, Lord, uh, without a, a roadmap, without a template, without a plan. Uh, Lord, you've given us all the things we need to uh, govern and order the meetings that we have together, the times that we spend together, Lord, to prioritize that which is important, um, and Lord, to understand what you would have us do. Uh, Lord, your word says we're to occupy until you come. Uh, and Father, thank you that your word gives us so much uh, instruction as to how we should be living our lives, what we should be doing, uh, and particularly, Lord, uh, how we should be when we come together as a family. So we thank you for these lessons. Help us to learn them. Uh, Lord, help us to put into practice the things we learn so that we would be a body of believers that are pleasing to you, uh, Lord, in our conduct and our walk with you. We ask you just bless this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is a challenging chapter, just 15 verses, um, but it is probably one of the chapters that has caused, uh, well, I would say more controversy, but almost as much controversy as any other chapter you'll find in the New Testament, because it talks about the role of women. But it also talks about the role of men. Um, and some people kind of miss that part of it. So um, what I want you to look at, first of all, is just the breakdown that we've got. Um, the first verse really starts off, we're going to come to this in a second, um, and it's an instruction for the men, specifically. Uh, and that goes down all the way through down to verse 8. And then it says, in like manner also, and then we have instruction for the women. Now, actually, you'll find that Peter does this. When Peter addresses the the tricky subject of roles within a church and roles uh, and so in society and so on, um, Peter addresses both the men and the women. In fact, Peter only gives a few verses to the men because we can't cope with them too much. Uh, and there's a little bit more instruction for the women in Peter's account. We'll look at some of those verses in a while. Um, but, of course, we live in an age where so much of what scripture says we're apparently not allowed to say it's not deemed acceptable it's not deemed politically correct uh, and of course we're told what we should believe uh, by the thought police um, who like to try and govern everything that that is said and done so we're going to look at what scripture says because scripture trumps anything else that the world would say i think you'll agree with that so so we start off in First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. And Paul says to Timothy, again, this young pastor, I exalt therefore that first of all. Okay, now we're getting a priority order here. The first thing that is listed, and then again, you're going to see this is specifically given as a kind of a thing for the men, and you'll see why. 
the first thing that we're told is that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for all people. Okay? That's the first thing that we're told. So, Paul exalting. You know, this is strongly encouraging, urging. This is the idea. Uh, and again, building on what we've already said about the, the doctrine and all the things that are important in a church, he says, I exalt therefore that first of all, this is the, the first thing we do is pray. Now, actually, most of the time, it's one of the last things we do. You know, we, we, we'll do all sorts of other things before we go and pray. You know, and it even comes to something as simple as a headache, for example. The first thing we do is go and take a paracetamol, typically. The last thing we do, if paracetamol hasn't worked and we've been to the doctor and he hasn't been able to help and we've gone online and Googled it and we haven't found any other solution to the problem, if we've drank plenty of water we know is not dehydration, then we might pray. You see, we kind of somehow have got prayer at the bottom of our list rather than at the top of our list in all things. But clearly Paul is saying the most important thing, and this is within a body of believers but within our own lives as well, the most important thing is prayer. We can't put prayer to one side. Now, I would clarify this as well because this is in the context of already having addressed the issue of sound doctrine. Because there is a real danger that people can become real prayer warriors and yet neglect Scripture, neglect the doctrine that we've been given that's been handed down from Jesus to the apostles and recorded in Scripture for us. Now, that can be equally problematic because there are many people that are very sincere and they pray a lot, but they pray a lot of nonsense. They pray a lot of things that really uh, are not scripturally founded. They're not based in anything we find in God's Word. One example, I've probably shared this a number of times. I'll share it again because it's applicable. Some years ago, I was at a Spring Harvest conference uh, with a friend of mine. Um, and the person at the front said, I want you to all get in groups and we're going to spend some time praying. And we're going to pray for world peace. And I looked at my friend, and my friend looked at me, and we both shook our heads. I knew what he was thinking, he knew what I was thinking. And it was, you know, simply that Scripture tells us that there will not be peace in this earth until the Prince of Peace returns. So to us to sit there and spend a quarter of an hour or whatever it was going to be in groups, all praying for world peace, praying that all conflicts are going to end, it's futile. Because it's praying against what God has revealed in His Word. Now, Lots of things we can pray in regard to the situation. And when we take Syria, for example, we can certainly be praying for the Christians in Syria. They need our prayers. We can certainly pray that God would intervene and that the the struggle, the, the, the issue there would come to an end. I mean, we don't know how that's going to resolve fully. We do know that Damascus is going to be a heap of ruins. And if you've seen on the news, you'll see already pretty much it's there. But you see, we can pray with wisdom when we know what the Word of God says. When you look at prayers through Scripture, it's fascinating to look at how people pray. Daniel is a great example. Daniel in chapter 9 prays based upon the Word of God, the things that have already been recorded. He almost verbatim quotes Solomon's prayer about the nation of Israel if it were to rebel, if it were to be cast out of its land. And he prays, facing Jerusalem, that God would heal and restore and build up the city and the people and so on. And it's almost word for word what Solomon had said. You know, David, in his prayers that we read in the book of Psalms, quotes scriptures. He quotes the things from the the Torah, from the law. And that's the best way to pray. 
Pray in accordance with God's word. So let's just get the context here that it's okay and it's, it's absolutely right that we're saying a prayer is number one on the list. Prayer is number one on the list once we understand sound doctrine is fundamental. But if you have not got sound doctrine, then in all honesty, get that sorted first before you start praying. Because otherwise your prayers could be just all sorts of ramblings that you feel are the right thing to be praying for. I've said many a time, uh, and, and this is deemed sometimes to be controversial, I would rather encourage you to read the Bible than pray. Now, I'm here standing telling you that Paul is telling Timothy to pray. But unless you read scripture, you won't know what to pray. So read the Bible. Read the Bible. Understand what God has said about the way we should live, about the way the fellowship should be, about how we should love and care and support for each other, about the world in which we live in, about the nation of Israel and where all these things fit together. Once you've read Scripture, once you've got a grasp of Scripture, well, then get on your knees. But if we don't have sound doctrine, as we've seen in chapter 1, then our prayers, can, however sincere they may be, can be somewhat amiss. So, that's the context. He says, I exhort you therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now it's interesting because we've got a list of things there. In fact, there's actually seven different Greek nouns for prayer uh, that we find in the New Testament. Uh, and four of them are actually used in this one verse alone. The first we have is supplications. It's a Greek word, desis. And it, it has this idea of, of need, about it it's a real uh, intense kind of prayer you know the idea really is that is an offering a request for a felt need something that's really personal something that really impacts us that's the idea of supplications you know it's almost you know praying for a friend in need or a circumstance that that needs urgent response that's the kind of idea so the first thing that paul says to timothy is you need to be praying in that way about those things that are urgent. Now, the second one is the word that's translated as prayers. Um, Prosecu uh, is the, the Greek word, and it emphasizes uh, the sacredness of prayer. Because we need to pray in such a way that we recognize who we're praying to. It's interesting when you look at the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, and it's the same model that Jesus uses in John 17. When Jesus prays for his own, that's the, the wonderful prayer we have in, in the upper room and before they head off to, the, to Gethsemane. Jesus adopts exactly the same model as he gives to the disciples by starting to pray for to pray to his Father, who he recognizes as being our Father, those all those who believe. Recognizing that God is in heaven, that God's perspective is so much different than ours. You know, if we start our prayers in that kind of way, by going to God and praying, our Father, who art in heaven. You know, we're not going and immediately thinking about all the things that we want or need or would like. We're going and recognizing who we're praying to. His awesomeness, his greatness. You know, there's also people that spend all sorts of money trying to understand the cosmos, the universe. And lots of great scientists who invest their lives trying to understand what's out there. And you and I get the privilege of going before the creator of all of those things when we pray. We're coming to God's presence the God who created everything who sustains everything 
who holds all things together. And you and I get the privilege of going into his presence. And when we understand who God is, when we just allow that moment of reflection, it changes so much of what we may have otherwise prayed. Oswald Chambers said, suppose God is the God you know him to be when you are closest to him. What an impertinence worry is. What he's saying is think about the moments in your life when you've been really close to God, when maybe you've just seen an answer to prayer or maybe something wonderful's happened and you just feel just so close to the Lord. He said, well, that's how God is all the time. God doesn't change. He said, so really, why do we worry? When we get to another set of circumstances that we weren't ready for, suddenly we doubt and you know, it's a Simon Peter thing, isn't it? You know, looking to Jesus, he's fine. But the moment he takes his eyes off Jesus, he begins to sink. You know, so when we come in prayer before the throne and we realize just who God is, I mean, now maybe just a moment for some of those scriptures to, to come to our remembrance. The Holy Spirit will bring them to our remembrance. That he'll never leave us or forsake us. That if we trust in him, he will direct our paths. You know, that he's begun a good work in us and he's going to continue it until the day that we see Jesus. That he's able to present us faultless before his presence. You know, we just start to think of even just some of those promises. It changes the way you pray. That's why we should go to God, first of all, thinking about how great he is and all the problems we're going to bring. And as soon as we start to think about God's greatness, it does change our perception. That, that model prayer that Jesus gives, it, it's so important that the structure, because there's a place that we bring, there's a place within that that we bring our, our needs and so on, and that's what that supplication that we just said is about as well. But we get the, the sequence right. In other words, that Paul uses is intercessions or petitions. This uh, Greek word uh, in Texas, yeah. And it means to draw near to a person and converse confidently. See, that's the way we should go in prayer. Not timidly, not sure if God's going to hear, if we're worthy or so on. In ourselves, we're not worthy. But when we go before the throne, we pray and we should end our prayers, however you end it, but something along the lines of in Jesus' name. Because that's the way and that's the authority with which we pray. We don't pray, you know, out of a, you know, I hope you hear me because I'm trying to do my best. It's not that at all. We're going effectively with whatever is on the check, it's signed by Jesus. And so we know that we are granted an audience with our Heavenly Father, that he will hear us when we pray when we pray in faith. And that praying in faith is praying in Jesus' name. That's what praying in faith is. It's not just praying and hoping. That's not praying in faith. That's praying and hoping. Praying in faith is praying in Jesus' name. Putting our faith in him. And that's the idea of of intercessions here. And of course we use intercessions when we talk about interceding uh, for other people. Uh, when we pray on behalf of other people, you know. But it's important when we do so that we have that level of confidence. It's, it's incredible to realize that Jesus also intercedes for us. 
Jesus prays for us. But there's another part to this as well. The idea behind this, this Greek word, it also emphasizes fellowship. You know, it speaks of a, a closeness of a relationship. And that again is the situation when we come to the Lord in prayer, when we bring our request before him, we should do so boldly. That's what we're told in the book of Hebrews, isn't it? We come boldly before the throne of grace. Because we're coming to one who we know we can have confidence in and whom we have fellowship with. You know, of course, there are some conditions around this as well in prayer. Of course, we need to be walking in the light as he is in the light. First John deals with this quite a bit. You know, we can't say we have fellowship with him if we're walking in darkness. You can't be giving into temptation as John was, was sharing earlier about the, the reality of the spiritual battle we're in, the temptations that surround us and so on. You know, if you're giving into temptation, if you're allowing yourself to be overwhelmed by those things, well, recognize that your prayers are going to be hindered. You know, not least because Psalm uh, 66.18 says, if we regard iniquity in our heart, he will not hear. It's a spiritual law. God effectively says, you cannot come into my presence and bring your prayers and requests if you are carrying a bundle of iniquity with you because that cannot come into my presence. Only if we are right with God, if we are righteous. Again, we can't do it in our own strength. It has to be through Jesus Christ, through his blood. That's the only way of entering into his presence at all. But if we are bringing with us Issues that we're not prepared to address. What is it Jesus says? Even, you know, two friends, he speaks of, you know, don't bring your gift before the altar if you've got an issue with a friend. Go and get it sorted and then bring the offering. When you come to bring a prayer or request before God, if there's an issue in your life, if there is temptation that you've given into, well, immediately deal with that first. And yes, we deal with it through prayer again. We come, we confess our sin because he is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it is a proper, complete, total cleansing where even the conscience can be purged. So really, really important that we understand that we have to be in the right place spiritually if we are going to come to the Lord in prayer because we are going boldly before the throne of grace, in confidence, knowing that there is nothing to be censored in our lives. Now, none of us are sinless, and of course, again, in First John, John deals with this quite a bit. That, you know, we do stumble, we do fall, we make mistakes, but the moment you do, you go to the Lord, you repent, and you get back on track, and you're cleansed, and you carry on walking. But we should never go into God's presence knowing there are things in our lives that we're not willing or not prepared to address. You know, and the quote from Oscar Wilde as well. I mean, no, no. We have the power to resist temptation. That's what Scripture says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The problem is so many people don't resist temptation. They just give in to it. So the last one of these things that Paul says to Timothy that we should be constantly doing, that is number one on our list of things, is thanksgiving. Eucharista is the Greek word 
And it's the idea of just bringing praise before the throne, thanking God. You know, we are told that we shouldn't worry about anything. But all things be prayer and supplications, that word supplication again. But we should give God thanks when we see answers to those prayers. And, you know, a number of times David praises God and doesn't even bring a request. He just praises God. I mean, Psalm 103 is an example, and some other examples in Scripture we can see, where simply it's just an overflow of gratitude to God. You know, and that should also be part of our approach to the throne. When we come to the Lord, you know, we do go, and there are times that the Spirit will stir us and we will need to pray for certain things, and that's absolutely right. But there's also times that we should just come and praise Him and thank Him. He's worthy of all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. I love when we get to Revelation and we see these creatures before the throne day and night and they are praising God. And they never get tired. They never get to a point of going, okay, we've done that, now what are we going to do? You know, it's like, you know, I don't know how you feel sometimes in the congregation. For me, playing as a musician, maybe I feel differently. But those times when we are worshiping God, and I just wish it could go on forever. You know, when we are just lost in praise, when we're just thanking God for his goodness and for who he is, and you just get this overwhelming sense of his presence. And you just think, I just want to stop that moment and let that run for eternity. But, you know, there's going to come a time when there won't be the problems that we have today. You know, the Lord is going to wipe away every tear from our eye. He will be our God. We will be his people. It will be what God always intended. And that's where we're heading, and we will eventually have that that privilege and that opportunity to be in his presence to worship. But these are the, the things that Paul says to Timothy he should be doing in his prayer. Prayer life is, is not just a, a simple thing in that sense. It's a, it's a complexity to it, and it's good that we understand these things. Notice also that we're to pray for all men, all people specifically. All mankind. No person on earth is outside the influence of believing prayer. We need to pray for everyone. That, that, that's a very, very broad brush, isn't it? You know, that means we're praying for the saved and the unsaved. We pray for each other. We bear each other's burdens. We stand in the gap and intercede on behalf of each other. But we also pray for those that are not yet saved because we recognize that salvation is of the Lord, that conviction of sin comes through the Holy Spirit working in someone's life, that we cannot, by our words or our actions or anything, convince somebody or bring about that change of heart. It is only the Lord doing it. And the barrier to the Lord working in someone's life are those strongholds that have been built up by the devil. Those things that exist in people's minds, those philosophies, those ideas, those thoughts, everything that, as Paul says in Corinthians, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Those are the things that are the barriers. Now, sometimes the Lord will use our conversations. He will use the things we say but only through prayer. In terms of if we are praying, the Lord will use us to say something, that's fine. But if we just go about saying things and we're not praying, well, don't expect to see great results. 
But we are to pray for all people. You see, the Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And so one of the roles for a church is to pray for all people. Stephen, we see in Acts 7, praying for his persecutors, praying for those that stoned him, wishing it not to be laid to, to their charge, recognizing they were ignorant. Even Jesus on the, the cross prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, so people that persecute us, people that are against us, we pray for them. You know, whether it's people that are, are close to us, whether it's family, people that are far away. You know, we can, by our prayers, affect things that are going on in the other side of the world. It's incredible power that's been given to us through prayer. And again, whether enemies or friends, we're to pray for all people, for all mankind. And actually, Timothy goes on, and, and sorry, Paul goes on and, and expounds to Timothy a little bit of what he's meaning here, because he's saying, pray for all men, all mankind, but he specifically says, for kings and for all that are in authority. The, notice this, and this is the reason he gives for that, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. There's a reason that we pray for those in authority. It's not just that their job becomes easier and they have a, a better time and everything's stable and so on. No, it's actually so that it allows for the preaching of the gospel. You know, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. You know, it's important that we pray for those in authority that the gospel can be preached. This brings the question of submitting to governing authorities. Because if we're to pray for those who are in authority, well, sometimes we may not always feel like this. And this is the, the portion that really is directed at the men. You see, Jesus said in Mark twelve seventeen, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus recognized the authority of Rome. There is no power that exists that hasn't been appointed or allowed to be in that position by God. Yet really, it's to be absolutely submissive to God, and you'll discern from God's ways how to be secondarily submissive to human institutions and authorities. You know, sometimes we we like to rebel against authority. You know, I, I'm amazed just how abusive the press are um, toward government. Uh, I, I'm also amazed how sometimes the opposition, whoever at whatever time in history the opposition is, but the opposition in terms of a political sense, how disparaging they are to those who are, are sitting in government at the time. You know, it, it's they're just blatantly rude sometimes. And I think there's something in what Paul's saying here about the way our attitudes are to be. And again, particularly for the men. You know, we shouldn't be looking to undermine the authority that exists, but rather support it. And I don't mean, that doesn't mean go along with everything. First Peter 
chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, says this. Submit yourself. Don't say agree with, okay? But submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. You see, there's a reason we have the conduct that we do. And again, it's to put to silence the ignorant and the foolish that God will bring his blessing upon us. God sees all of these things. Romans 13 also says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. It's talking about those in authority. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. The word damnation doesn't mean in terms of hell. It's just talking about judgment. You'll receive judgment, you'll receive condemna- uh, condemnation. If you break the law, you're going to be guilty of it. You know, so I kind of almost get the idea that what Paul is saying here, that we shouldn't be political activists trying to bring down the establishment, but rather by our conduct we should show that respect to human government because that speaks of how we respect ultimately God's government. Now, Having said that, there are some exceptions. And we need to be very clear about these things. We'll look at a couple of these examples. In Acts chapter 4, we read this. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, love that, they were just ordinary folk that the Lord had filled with his spirit and they were doing extraordinary things. They marveled. This is the Jewish leadership. They marveled and they took knowledge of them. They had, they had been with Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? People just looking from the outside and they recognized Jesus by the things that are being done. And beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that, indeed, a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name, i.e. the name of Jesus. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Okay, so this is the authority, this is the government, as it were that are telling them this. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God judge you. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now this is in direct contradiction to that which they've been instructed. So when they had Further threaten them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people, for all men glorified God for that which was done. We have to understand that we've got a very different situation now, uh, not one that's expressly addressed in Scripture with the way our government is structured because it's not like it was in the time of Rome or other times in history because our, our officials are actually representative of the people. They've been elected by the people. They are, in a sense, our employees. We have put them in that position to govern for us. 
The Bible doesn't deal directly with the responsibilities of a, a democracy in which officials are elected and then laws are drafted by those elected officials and that then those laws themselves have authority over the officials. So Scripture doesn't exactly speak or specifically speak about that type of scenario, but the principle is the same, that we are to be subject to the law. So we are committed to the rule of law, not to a specific ruler. That does mean, of course, if we have people that are bringing forth ideas or wanting to bring forth bills, laws, whatever, that are contrary to Scripture, we are absolutely in the right to stand up and say against those things. And I praise God for groups such as the Christian Institute and many others that do that in a very godly way. Certainly we should be praying for for the Christian Institute, for Colin Hart and for others uh, that are doing that work. See, submission for us in our democracy in which we live is primarily to the laws and legal processes, not to persons themselves. Those people have just been placed in positions by the populace, by the people that have elected them. Biblical submission is, in a sense, a readiness to obey law and uphold the legal order. And I think that's the key, is being willing and ready to obey rather than being in a position where we're always trying to fight against. It's not an approval or endorsement of all lawmakers or all the laws, absolutely. I mean, we're not just blanket saying we, we agree with everything that's passed, because, of course, we don't. You know, Christ's absolute supremacy over our lives qualifies the absoluteness of human law. And again, it's interesting with John the Baptist preaching, Jesus' comments. Jesus said, Very I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there is not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, the interesting thing here is that this is what Jesus said of John the Baptist, and at the time, John was in prison. John was in prison. Why? Because he'd spoken against this governmental power, as it were. He publicly indicted the ruling king. But John speaks of John, Jesus speaks of John as being the greatest. Uh, he doesn't speak of him as being subversive in that sense because John was speaking the truth. John's mission, John's reason for saying those things was different. Herod had John arrested and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, for John had been uh, saying to him, is it not lawful for you to have her? So, oh, sorry, it is not lawful for you to have her because of this whole immoral situation uh, that had come on. So, you know, opposition to a leader's behavior or public criticism of it, um, a declaration of moral unfitness for office is not necessarily inconsistent with a submissive spirit to governing authorities. Told in Romans thirteen three, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of uh, the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. You see, the, the contrast here is with the, the rebellious Jews against the Roman law. Uh, Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome, but the problem is, for us, what do we do when the rulers are evil and actually become a terror to good works? Because the context here is if the rulers are good, then of course we submit to them. But when they're not good, what do we do? Chuck Misler made this statement. He said, I believe that we are going to see more persecution of Christians in this country in the future. We are heading into a time when laws will be passed that make it hard for us to be Christians. What do we do with those? Well, 
It's interesting, the whole situation, if you look at Asher's bakery, they challenged. But they didn't do it in a, in a subversive kind of way. They did it in a very submissive way. And the people that initially brought them to, to trial and so on in Ireland, not the, the, the individual that brought the case, but the people that ruled initially, if you notice this week it's come out that the, the Christian Institute in Ashes are not going to pursue them for the costs. I thought it was a really good thing. And there's a reason there's more, more to it than that, um, but it's a very Christian turn-the-other-cheek kind of action. You know, but what they did was a, a very right and proper thing to do, but they did it in a very loving, Christian way. But persecution is coming, definitely. J. Vernon McGee stated uh, in his view, uh, he said that this will probably not include many church members. In other words, he thinks uh, persecution is coming on Christians, but for most people in most churches, it won't cause them a problem because they're not living a Christian life. They're going through the motions. They may attend church on a Sunday morning. I've mentioned to you uh, a number of times, Nora, my colleague, I work in London. He's a Methodist lay preacher. Um, they appointed a homosexual uh, minister to come and teach at the church. Um, and a number of the congregation were really unhappy, particularly because this individual was then administering communion. And so a number of them have stopped going. Uh, they've now, the circuit head has written to every member of the congregation saying that they're not being Christian. It's amazing. It, regardless of what the Bible says, apparently these individuals you know, are not being Christian because of their views and their, their wanting to stand on what the Bible says. Uh, J. Vernon McGee actually said, the liberal church is so compromised today that they will go along with whatever comes along. You know, so in, in our being submissive, uh, getting under the law, being under the law, it, it doesn't mean that we just get, it doesn't imply for any moment that we become weak. Just another thing I just want to share with you, because I saw this this week, it was just amazing, just again showing where the church is and why judgment will be coming. Will be, Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, I'm just going to read this, has made the astonishing admission that he does not care if vicars leave the Anglican Church to become Roman Catholic priests. In an interview with the Spectator magazine, Justin Welby was asked about a range of issues affecting the Church of England, including declining attendances. He dismissed this, claimed the decline is flattening, and was similarly dismissive with a number of clergy deserting the Church of England's ranks. He says, when asked what he thought about the issue, he responded, who cares? I don't mind about that, particularly if people go to Rome, which is such a source of inspiration. I had an email from a very old friend and an Anglican priest who has decided to go to Rome. I wrote back saying, how wonderful. As long as you are following your vocation, you are following Christ. There you go. The head of the Church of England in this country. Now, ch the church is in such a mess and many won't experience persecution because, well, <laughs> they're right where the devil wants them to be. We go on, it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. We, we leave it here this morning. The, the point I want to really get across is, that our attitude should be such that it glorifies God. 
Okay, and this is really the point. Because this is good and acceptable. This attitude that we should have towards government. It's good and acceptable on the side of God our Savior because we are to be his ambassadors. People should look to us and not be offended because we're off on some political crusade or whatever. Because we're trying to tear down someone here or there or whatever we want to try and do. No, because we should be out there fighting a bigger, more important battle. The battle that John was talking about earlier on this morning. That spiritual battle that is blinding the eyes of those that believe not. Because God will have all men to be saved and come unto a knowledge of the truth. You see, it's getting our priorities right. God's kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is not of this world. That's not to confuse with the kingdom that will be established when Jesus returns. That's a very real kingdom that will rule over this world. But the kingdom of God is not of this world. It doesn't come with observation. The kingdom of God is within us, and we are ambassadors for God. We should be representing our king in a foreign realm. And our attitudes are a big part of that. People should be able to look to us and see a difference in the way that we are. And we don't want to get tied up with all of these things that are just, they're just tangents. They're just, in fact, they're temptations to pull us away from our real core purpose of being witnesses to the truth. Because God would have all men to be saved and come into a knowledge of the truth. Let's leave it there this morning. We'll pick it up from there next week and we'll get into the, we'll finish the rest of this bit about the men's attitude particularly and then we'll go on to look at uh, women and you'll start to see how these two dovetail together. Uh, let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. Lord, for your word. Thank you that your word gives us instruction of how we should be so that people would be saved. And Lord, this is what we truly desire. We want to see people come to know you. So Father, open opportunities, give us conversations, we pray with individuals. Give us the words to say, but most importantly, may your spirit do that work of conviction in their lives. Oh Lord, we pray that a multitude will be brought in by your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.